We have a conundrum here, folks. As we're recording this introduction to this week's episode, Kamala Harris was just sworn in as the first female VP. Can we just take a moment to appreciate that? Yes. <laughs> and also the first half black and half Asian person to hold higher office. It's not a stretch to say that many women and many people of color in this country see themselves in her and in her success. Yet, we also know that there were millions of white women who voted against her in November, who were uncomfortable with her being a woman of color and being in this highest office. And we also know that there were more than zero white women who participated in the Capitol insurrection and display of white supremacy that we all saw on January 6th, which being greater than zero is a number that makes us uncomfortable. So here's the conundrum. Why can't we as women get behind policies that strengthen all women, not just the ones who are white? So in order to take a deeper look into this question, we called on someone who's listed as one of Oprah's, quote, 100 awakened leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. She was one of the organizers of the first Women's March and looks at life as a mother, as a teacher, and as an overall disruptor, Jenna Arnold. You might have seen her resource list that was widely circulated after the murder of George Floyd. I mean, she is an absolute rock star. And for her best-selling new book, Raising Our Hands, she traveled all over the country, speaking with groups of white women in their homes for years. We can't wait to break down some of what she learned today to address that question. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations around race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Well, Jenna Arnold, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Could you take a moment to introduce yourself, please? I think I, aside from being the hovering mom of a virtual preschooler. I do consider myself an elementary school teacher. Like I, I consider myself an educator because I, having been a first grade, a professional first grade teacher, I find myself observing and processing the world at a first grade level, because I always find that's the best place to start. Like I remember when someone sat down to be like, Oh, let me tell you about Bitcoin. And you know, they dove in, I'm like, pause, pause, pause. Talk to me. Like I'm a six-year-old for like the first like couple of sentences I can get deep really quickly, but I need you to start at square one. And so I think when people ask me who I am and what I do, I think from a 30,000 foot perspective, I'm just a constant student. And then I regurgitate a lot of that, a lot of those observations. And I could wear the educator hat when I do that. It's where my real passion lies. I love helping people see things differently. I love that. I resonate with that. That's cool. I want to dig in right away because we want to make time towards the end of this conversation to talk about the 2020 election and what's next for this country. But our show is called Dear White Women, and we've been focused for the last almost two years on welcoming more white women into conversations and to listen to conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. And we're psyched to have you because you are a white woman. You identify as a white woman, and you've made waves talking with white women, working with white women through your listening circles. And I think you can help us sort of piece together part of this conversation about why white women should care about other people, basically. Well, I think I would respond with every human being should care about every other human being irregardless, or I should say regardless, because just as a side note, I said irregardless on Brian Williams, and I got more response for saying that word than I did for saying anything controversial. 
anything controversial and I've said plenty of things. So I think every human being, regardless of demographic, should care about another human being. I've become particularly intrigued with this demographic because of the influence. And I always cringe when I say these words, the influence and the power and the control and the resource that this one very specific group of people have. American white women are the largest voting block in the U.S. Estimates are they'll remain that way in 2060 through 2060, where they'll still, based on geography or projected geography, and obviously we know all that stuff shifts, but hypothetically now uh, where they'll still control 56 Senate seats, they control 85% of the U.S. economy and they raise the next generation of white boys. And to me, those are pretty influential currencies that they control, and I'm not... I found that they weren't as aware that they had as much of a significant role to play in the comings and goings across so many lanes, not just nationally, but internationally. So I've often thought my background is in foreign policy. I worked at the UN for years and have been laser focused on the most vulnerable populations worldwide, which are women and children women and girls, and have always thought that if American women, if the women that raised me that I spend a lot of time with both at Thanksgiving tables and both at Thanksgiving tables and, you know, in debates and, you know, where I spend my summer weekends with, if they knew about the pain and suffering of other women worldwide, they would have to do something. Like my hypothesis is constantly like, well, if I just present the facts to you, you're going to have to do something. Like you just can't sit with it, right? If you look historically at the post-natural disasters, be it the tsunami in Southeast Asia and Indonesia or the earthquake in Haiti, the United States like donated hundreds of millions of dollars because like whomever from whatever network went and reported from the ground and everyone saw And they did because of what they were seeing. And so my hypothesis was always like, well, if you can see what's happening, you're going to be forced to do. That's one of, I think, part of the human code. But I think it's also a characteristic of the country that we open our doors and we help strangers and we do things because that's part of a mandate as an American. So I've just been very intrigued by that demographic because I didn't think they saw what it was that they could influence. I really appreciate that because that is, I think, so true. And what we've seen in 2020 as well and the power of seeing, right? And then action. And I think a lot of times it was very easy for people to look away, especially if it did not pertain to you. And, you know, as the mother of two boys who are multiracial, but are half black and the world sees as black, it was very personal for me, a lot of what has happened. And to share those stories with women who that will not be their fears for their children has forced, I think, the listeners to take that, right? And to realize that once you hear that, once you see that, you have this obligation to act. So I want to talk about your book a little bit because I first saw you on a Hey Mama in Conversation webinar where you were talking about raising our hands. And I'm a huge book nerd. So I, of course, went out, got the book, loved it. So can you talk a little bit, because some of our listeners have probably not read your book and we would love for all of them to read your book. Can you tell us a little bit about the why behind writing your book? And then we want to ask you a couple of questions. I wrote this book because I had to read this book and I have been blessed to be surrounded by 
many activists representing many different types of communities over the past 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. And they've in conversation in our, you know, when we're at, you know, out drinking or when we're having deep conversations, they would say things that I was always confused about. Like they would say things about white folk not seeing or being ignorant. And I always just thought it was like the other white folk. And one point somebody said something about white people not seeing color. I forget exactly what it was. And I know I have it explicitly written at the top of chapter five and I should know it by heart, but I don't. But somebody said something like, oh, well, when white people don't think they see color. And I remember thinking, and I know so many of you, if you're listening to this podcast, you know where the story is going um, and sort of what my response then was, which was like, well, wait a second. I thought I wasn't supposed to be supposed to see color. And I spent the next year like marinating over that one statement. I could have gone to the bathroom and Googled why that was problematic and I didn't. And then about a year later, I asked one of my friends, a very good friend of mine, black woman, I said, I thought I wasn't supposed to. And then we dive, dove deep into why all of those details are very, very relevant to any individual story in the context of the world that I operated and the decisions that I was making. And, and so I realized like I had access, I was in proximity with close friends who were willing to flag things for me because of our friendship and because of a level of trust that took years to develop. And I knew that most of the white people that I had grown up with in the suburbs of Philadelphia didn't have these same types of relationships within the trans community, with the Asian American Pacific Islander community, within the disabled community. Like I was just having access and seeing things that weren't adding up with the narrative that I was born to believe was the American story and to believe that I was supposed to live. And so, right. And then that juxtaposed with hearing so many folks say white women need to go get white women. And obviously the 2016 statistic that 51% of American white women voted for Trump, which I'll get back to that statistic and the one that came out this past year. They're both wrong, but the answer is also not zero. So it's problematic. But when I saw those numbers, I was like, this isn't adding up. It's not adding up. And I was one of the organizers of the Women's March. And when I stood on stage in 2017 and looked out at the sea of pink pussy hats, I was like, wow, most of these people who are wearing these like observationally, they like look white, they read white. And I couldn't add up who I was seeing, the relationship that I had with all of the white women who raised me. And then a lot of these statistics about white women's voting patterns. So I had this moment of like, oh, okay, we have to actually go get them. It can't just be like, Jenna, you go do your social justice work within your social justice communities. Like you have to go get your Aunt Judy's. You have to go get them. And so I was like, okay, now I got it. So I like picked my head up like a meerkat and I was like, okay, where's the organization and what's the listserv and what's the podcast? It was crickets. Like none of this existed four years ago. And so I was like, all right, I got to get to the bottom of this. So I spent the past four years crisscrossing the country, having closed door conversations with American white women. And I broke up the demographic in very stereotypical buckets. It was, you know, atheist young moms in Brooklyn to, you know, very wealthy conservative Jewish women in the suburbs of Ohio to evangelical moms in Texas to So like, I really tried to homogenize my different groups. And I asked existential questions like, 
What are you willing to fight for besides your kids? And what stereotype about you is true? And how has America failed you if it has at all? And so this idea of like really understanding people's purpose, place, and role in the structure of our country. And so I ultimately decided that there was a book here, as did my publisher. And that's why I wrote it, because I needed to read it. And genuinely, like this sounds crazy, but I'm one of those people. And I wish I retained more of what I read, but I don't. But like, even though I read, wrote this book and I spent years on it, like I still have to open it up and like reread it. And I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. So being able to like have it as a genuine source to go back to is why I wrote it. You know what really, I loved the listening circles because it reminded me of, you know, like civil rights organizing in some ways in, you know, the sixties and how white organizers would go to like small white Southern towns and just talk to people in a way that was not, that didn't happen. Right. And so, you know, every time you were writing about these listening circles, it was fascinating to me because those are not necessarily circles that Sarah or I are part of at times. And just the act of asking questions, really uncomfortable questions at times and forcing people to sort of sit with that discomfort and say things that they might be ashamed of or, you know, have all sorts of feelings about, right, was so powerful. And are there a couple of moments that you can remember from those listening circles that were really like those aha or like, this is something I didn't expect type moments? When I was on maternity leave with my second son, like a week after I had him, I had this whole list of documentaries that I was getting through. And the first one was I am not your Negro, which is the documentary about Baldwin. And he had a quote or the director had chose a quote at the end of the film, which had like rocked, had like broken open all it's, I'm still wrestling with it. I was wrestling with it even this morning. And it was a catalyst for a lot of trying to get to the bottom of how white folk can pretend not to see what is, you know, the longest rerun in American history, the oppression of marginalized communities. And it was this quote, it says, white people have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will no longer be needed. And I, had sat with that quote and this idea around like self-hate and how it's so much easier to point fingers at other individual people or groups of people or political parties and or media networks today and be like, they're the problem. And instead of doing the introspective work to figure out how you actually are. And I was taken aback by the level of, and I wrestle with the term hate, but disappointment, apathy, despair that a lot of white women I felt like had in my circles. And now this isn't universal and this doesn't, isn't necessarily true a hundred percent of the time, right? Who I am as a mom this morning is going to be very different than who I am as a mom after I am asking my kid to brush their teeth for the fourth time this evening, you know, like this idea that obviously our emotions ebb and flow throughout any given day, but, you know, in really pushing on these existential questions around like, well, tell me about your legacy. And do you feel like you're living a purpose-driven life? And what brings you happiness? And everyone would always be like, my kids, my kids. And of course there's the joyful moments, but like, if you push people on legacy, there's a lot of outstanding questions of like, oh, am I really leaving something behind that makes me feel like my to-do list and all the exhausting things that I'm pushing through constantly are worth it. And so I was really surprised 
and taken aback by and still trying to unpack this level of disappointment and self-hate that I heard pretty constantly. That's very, very, very buried in what I call performance chores and pretending perfection. So like, you know, you can pretend your Instagram feeds are perfectly filtered photos, your Christmas dinners, your Christmas trees, because we're recording this at Christmas. I'm thinking a lot about Christmas trees, but like this idea of like your kids are the quarterback of the football team or you have that, you know, most high powered title at your office, or you've run the 26 marathons, like this idea of like, I'm delivering something of perfection so that I don't actually have to deal with some of the other parts of myself that I'm not, that I'm a little bit more disappointed in, which I think is like the human feat, but I think it's very exaggerated in a capitalistic structure that says like, well, you're either the best or you're not. So that was surprising. We could so derail this conversation right now and spend the next hour having this conversation because me, Sasha and I have been talking about perfectionism. We've been talking about fear. We've been talking about how so much of the pressure, the dehumanization that we put like, and that pressure to be more than human is related to all of this. And I have a personal fascination with positive psychology and what it takes to thrive as human beings. And I can't help but feel that these things are interconnected. That's chapter two of my book. Like I realized that everybody was checking a sequence of boxes that look very different and not everyone checked every single one of them, but that it was like, get through school, get through like grade school, have enough friends, get through undergrad, get some level of degree, like find a partner pretty quickly, get that ring on your finger, you know, let's spend the next six months or 16 months planning the wedding. And before you unwrap the last wedding present, you're asked what? And then three months before you have your first kid, you're asked, and this isn't just related to white women in this country, but it is a very American question. Three months before you have your first kid, you're asked what I think is one of the most privileged questions on the planet. And it is a question that has been afforded primarily to advantaged and privileged communities, mostly white women, which is, do you know what question I'm going to ask? Hello, this is my life. Like, are you going to be a stay-at-home mom? And I, we can keep the mommy wars in the 90s where they belong. But the idea that like, that's the Everest, you summited, you checked every box. And now you get to pick whether or not you're going to have a career, job, or profession, or you're going to stay at home. And now I don't care what you choose, but there's a bucket of guilt that you carry regardless of the direction that you go. And that's like, to me, that is like the Everest, right? Like that's the summit. And here you have one of the most highly educated, well-resourced populations tapping out when they get knocked up. Like some of... My stay-at-home friends, some of the my friends who are stay-at-home moms, are the smartest women I know. You focused a lot on the unrealized power of women and white women in particular. You just mentioned it a little bit ago, but you also point out that there are definitely barriers that white women put on themselves around it, right? Like, I think you recently had an Instagram post that really resonated with us. It was Minda Hart's tweet about somebody's freedom is tied to you activating your voice. And yet... I think you mentioned this also in a previous podcast, but 84% of women don't want to talk about politics. And I think there's this balance between, you know, speaking up, but then also all of us have talked about the need to listen to others. When do you know when people should speak up and say something versus shut up and listen? 
Yeah, it's a really hard line to figure out. And my response is always like, don't calculate this too much. Like it becomes too dangerous if you start calculating like when to and when not to. I think there's a couple of general rules and I sort of use the rule that I apply related to something very dramatic and scary, which is when you have to call 911. I don't know if you've all ever had to call 911, but like, you know, when to call 911, like it is not up for discussion. It's like as quickly as possible, get help. And in the times when you're like, do I need to call 911? Well, maybe I can actually, maybe we can just take a car ride over. Like those are the moments when you're a little bit like, okay, maybe we can workshop this and figure this out together. But when you know you have to call 911, like there's no questions asked. And so I often say like, there's moments when you absolutely have to jump in, right? If you think about Amy Cooper, the white woman who called the police on Chris Cooper of no relation for bird watching while he was bird watching in Central Park when he called her out for not having her dog on a leash, like the police were coming. She wanted the police to come to facilitate a tense exchange between them. And I could dissect why she did that, but for hours, but we all know that when police interact with black male bodies, that very dangerous things can happen, including death, right? And so in those moments, like, yes, somebody has to jump in and be like, hey, that's not what's happening. He's not doing anything. There is no threat here. Like you would have to act in those moments. It's just like, like when you see a drowning kid, like, you know, you jump in the water, like you do everything you can to save that person. And then I think there's the moments where it's, which I also wrestle with, right? Like if you're at a Christmas party and your husband's boss makes a comment about, you know, the tight dress that one of the executive admins might be wearing or a joke about, you know, the gender pay gap, or there's those kinds of moments where like, I tend to now say things more freely, like, Hey, that I don't actually, that's not my experience. My understanding is that those numbers look different. And then sometimes knowing if I am not intentionally wanting to public shame somebody, cause I am not in the business of canceling folks, right? Like we are all on a journey that I will like text someone the next day and be like, Hey, I just, something you said last night didn't add up. And I was wondering if I, if you might have a few minutes to talk about it. And when I get on the phone and this is where like, I think specifically white women need a little bit more training and a little bit more empathy and compassion is like, when you are calling a friend or a loved one in, and I use the term in, not out, we have to approach it with humility and vulnerability and, not some higher than thou position because what I've seen so frequently and it's driving me crazy is how we just like Baldwin said about that quote of when we can identify when we can hate somebody else or what someone else is saying, it doesn't mean we have to deal with that means we don't have to deal with our own stuff is that white women love policing white women now on language and what it is they're saying. And there is, we are a hundred percent responsible for each other, but there's ways not to shame people back into the corner. So they never speak up again. Right. I think about the days after George Floyd's murder. And there was that one activation about posting black squares on Instagram. And so many people did. And by noon that day, there were some questions about whether or not that was the right thing to do. Cause it was messing with the algorithm. And instead of like, saying like, well, I'm doing this and it's not an, like, I'm trying to be supportive and I want to be in community with people as we're fighting, you know, as we're talking about racial justice and law enforcement, da, 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 da. Like, instead of like attacking yourself or attacking somebody else for doing it wrong, I don't know, just pull down the black square and like, try again. Right. Or if like someone 
didn't see that there, that might not have been the most helpful thing to do by like five o'clock. You can like send them an Instagram and be like, Hey, I think that hashtag's messing with the algorithm. I've noticed some people are pulling it down instead of being like, you need to pull it down because that's not actually doing blah, 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 blah. And so I think that it's a lot of like taking the temperature of moments, like for those of us who have babysat children who have become parents, like you know, when you have to get involved with like, you know, sometimes I pretend like when the kids are fighting in the other room that I can't hear them because I don't feel like dealing with it. And then if someone bit someone else, oh, you know, I have to get involved, right? Like, you know, when you have to be a mediator, but I think that there's, there needs to be a new way and a new tone and a new desire to get into the hard work and the hard meat of holding ourselves and each other accountable. That's not to say that like when there's someone drowning that you're not screaming at the top of your lungs or when there's an Amy Cooper calling the police on somebody who doesn't, that's not needed or deserved or a very violent act. Like, no, you can scream at the top of your lungs. Like, you know, when you're supposed to raise your voice and when you're not, I think it's complex, but like, you know how to do it if you've babysat children for more than five minutes. Yeah. And I think the complexity is so true with a lot of the issues, right? And it is complex and messy and difficult. And so I'm going to ask another complex, messy, difficult question, because it seems like in 2020, you know, we've talked a lot about like individual good or what's right for me versus societal change or, you know, everyone sort of moving together, not just in the anti-racism sphere, but in so many spheres, right? Like a global pandemic that's medical, for example, you know, we talk about this a lot and we hear this a lot. And we saw this in your book too, that we often make, you know, individual choices that might work out really well for our own family, right? Like independent schools or having, you know, friend circles that are largely or all white, because that's who we organically meet, who are in our neighborhoods versus, you know, pushing those limits, getting uncomfortable and making personal trade-offs or changes that sort of benefit everyone. So how do you think, and I know this might be one of those it's complex questions, answers as well. Well, every question you might have or any listener has about any of this is complicated. And the complexity is what we should embrace and not use it in, as an excuse to go back to watching our, you know, binge watching Netflix. Yes, love that. So how do you think we should navigate that sort of really tricky balance, right? Between that individual good versus societal change. Do you think we can find some sort of like, I'm using air quotes around balance. Yeah. Right. Another mythical word. No, I don't think I do right now. And for the record, I might retract all of this in like, you know, a matter of minutes. And I think that's also an example of like how we have to give ourselves the freedom to like have an opinion at one minute and then realize that we can do better next. I don't. And I think I've been doing a lot of research in the past, like month around species evolution versus how we construct governments and systems to, you know, manage a world. And there is just this constant push-pull amongst researchers and academics and journalists, of which I am not, though I pretend to be whenever I'm like breaking out my highlighter, between like what is our instinct, what's the mama bear instinct and what's have we been taught? And our, the American narrative tells us that individualism is more, 
important than anything, right? Because we say you can pursue happiness. You can chase your dreams. You can be the chef or the artist or the stay-at-home mom or the whatever it might be. And so much, I believe, of the conservative Republican tax code is built on this idea of individualism, right? Like, well, you made the dollar, so you get to keep it. And then there's a part of me that's like, okay, but who's responsible for paving the road at the end of your driveway, right? And so, or like if you called that 911, or, you know, who's making sure that the dam up the street doesn't have cracks in it? And so I think individualism is a white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalistic structure. I don't think it is a mammalistic, is that a word? A mammal-based instinct. So in this moment, you know, again, if I think about how Americans would respond to a drowning kid, I can say with absolute confidence that 100% of us, I don't care who you voted for, would try to save that kid. A hundred percent of us, with the exception of like the sociopaths, fine. But like a hundred percent of us are going to try to save that kid. And then I also know that like, if I have to choose feeding my kid or someone else's kid, that becomes complicated, right? I get that. But I think this idea of like forcing even the question itself into the binary of like individualism or collectivism is a challenge because I don't think that's possible. I also don't think we can ever really split the hairs and be like, are we more individualists as a species or are we more collectivists as a species? We know like science and data and our like common sense instinct tells us we cannot survive without each other. Most of us, again, hundred percent, I'll say with the exception of like, you know, with the exceptions need to be in community with someone else to survive, that we need love, that we need nourishment, that we need to see and be seen. You know, that's what the Women's March was about. Like, it's my favorite. (laughs) I used to enjoy this. I don't do it anymore. But I used to like really enjoy asking people like, oh, why'd you march? And they would like stumble through their answer because like I marched for all of it, right? Like what's something going to be like? I marched for climate over reproductive justice. Like, no. You don't know. That's not right. (laughs) I mean, sure. Maybe you care more about the polar bears than you care about dogs. Fine. But like you can't answer like people showed up on the streets to see and be seen. There was an internal drumbeat that was saying something's not right. And I have to go be with my species. You know, like that's actually what happened. So I think we have to, for me, It's so disheartening to see people prioritize their individual conveniences over the collective good. And that's what capitalism tells us. Like your money is yours. Yeah, sure. Like I learned that when I started babysitting and making $3 and 60 cents on the dollar. Like, yeah, I worked hard for those dollars. I still do. But what we have to be clear about is that the people who have made the extraordinary wealth that are so protective of it didn't make it necessarily out of meritocracy, did not make it because we all started at the same starting line. Like, I think that's probably clear to your readers now is that like, we don't start at the same spot on the racetrack. You know, it's like my favorite quote, she was born on third, but she thought she hit a triple. And it's really actually a quote about George Bush. And it was a baseball coach who was describing him where it said, where he said, 
he was born on third, but he thought he had a triple. And I used it today in a social media post with Ivanka who, and I was in a debate with someone who I will not name about whether or not Ivanka is smart. And let me be crystal clear to all of you. We will not let her rebrand as if she is some like smart, holier than thou accomplished She's accomplished because she never had to raise a dollar in her life. She walked into the position that she's in. Like there was no hustle that got her to where she is. Yes, her days are very, very busy because she has a lot of decisions to make, but those decisions were handed to her. So anyway, I don't think that we should spend a lot of time thinking about the difference between if we can find that balance and we should just be as focused as we can be on how we can prioritize the collective. Let's shift gears because I think this really plays into this conversation about how that instinct that we know to be true doesn't always translate into our actions and the way we think about the choices we make in the greater world. And we've seen the exit polls where, it, in theory, it showed that more white women voted for Trump this year than in 2016. But I know you have thoughts about the exit polls. I want to hear all these thoughts. And I'm curious what you thought heading into the election. And did you think things had changed? Yes, a lot. By double digit. I knew that they were going to because I think that both what I had seen from the day after the inauguration of the Women's March with millions of Americans and then millions of people worldwide taking to the streets to see and be seen, but also the movement that I had seen amongst this demographic over the course of the next four years and then like Muslim ban, separation at the border, the Me Too movement, the cracks in our infrastructure related to COVID, George Floyd's murder, suddenly people who were voting for Trump were asking about white supremacy, biases and reparations. Like I knew the number was going to move. So I knew that the number and, you know, my interpretation and what I was expecting is that the number was going to move in double digits in a number of different states, which it did. And so I was super infuriated when that New York Times number came out because the number that I had also been one of my catalysts in 2016 was the number that 51% of American white women voted for Trump. And I spent two years perched on data scientist desks trying to get to the bottom of that figure. And I ultimately concluded with the help of much smarter brains than me, that that number was so far off that I couldn't even put it in the book. That that initial 2016 number was off by a margin of 10, which academics do not extend that kind of margin of error for each other. So it was either 44% or 64% of American white women voted for Trump in 2016, which is like, again, still not zero, it's still problematic, but nothing grounded enough that I could publish it. And then so when that 55% number came in, when 100 million people, so exit polls only poll people who actually voted day of, two thirds of the American population voted by mail, 100 million voters voted ahead of time. We know that mostly progressive Democrats voted by mail, right? Because that was the movement of that specific political party. And that, again, the red mirage on election night going into the blue wave, we knew that was going to happen. And the exit polls only polled, and if I recall correctly, it was 
only 15,000 Americans when you had like 150 million Americans voting. So it's literally, you know, I was a reality television. I created a bunch of reality television shows in my twenties. And when we would go shoot an episode, we would shoot like a hundred hours of a story of a narrative. And then we would edit it down into like 23, 24 minutes. And if someone recorded a hundred hours of me over the course of a number of days, they could tell whatever story they wanted. Either I was a raging bitch or I was like a quiet interest, like extrovert, like introvert. Like you could tell whatever story you wanted from a hundred hours, whittling it down to 23 minutes. And exit polls are like taking a hundred hours and whittling it down into one minute. And so many people from the voting community, people who were focused on GOTV, et cetera, et cetera, were infuriated by that statistics, all those statistics that came out from that exit poll, because as we also saw based on that exit poll, that Black men moved more Republican in this election. Well, they moved further right in the cities of Philadelphia and Detroit, but not Georgia, right? Don't take that away from Stacey. You know, like there's so much nuance to this data that to just come out and make the sweeping generalization that 55% of American white women voted for Trump. Well, most white women who voted day of were Republicans. Most voters voted, most Democratic progressive voters voted mail-in. And we knew those numbers weren't going to show up. And look at what they've done. They're 10 million votes off from what Trump got. You know, so it's like this idea of the exit polls and data we knew in 2016, like my wound is not healed from 2016. It, like I just thought Hillary was going to win and I didn't do as much as I could have to hustle harder. And then here we all fell for it again, going into 2020. We knew that polls are off. We were also told like, don't freak out on election night. There's going to be a red mirage. And what did we all do from like 10 PM to midnight? Freaked out right? Like we know that exit polls are off and then those exit polls drop the next day and everyone's like up in arms. I, based on my calculations, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, college educated white women moved in double digits in places like Maricopa County, Bucks County, Montgomery County. They moved 5% only in a single digit in Pennsylvania, but 5% is many tens of thousands of votes. That's also a state, particularly a swing state like Pennsylvania. So that 55% number is wrong. It's off. It's dangerous. The New York Times even came out days after saying their polling going into the election and their exit polls are so off that they're borderline undemocratic and they're contemplating whether or not they're going to continue to use polling going into any other elections because they've been so off. Like there just needs to be new science around how we do it. But, you know, there's been a lot of effort over the past four years to make sure that it was going to be closer going into 2020, that the scientific practices of data collection going into this election was going to be better and it was worse. And they, I think the polling community is a bit at a loss. I'm not involved in that community, so I can't speak on behalf of it. But my understanding and the research that I've done since then is that they're all just shaking their heads in confusion. So I say 55% is wrong, not as an invitation for us to pat ourselves in the back, because again, the number's not zero, right? Like we can like take a beat when the number's not zero. And by beat, I mean, when the number's zero and by beat, I mean like, 
we can like go watch a series for a week, but then we have to like go back out to the streets and protect that 0%. But we know that number is still in the double digits of white women who thought Trump was a better candidate, you know, a candidate that's demonstrated bigotry, racism, xenophobia, classism, that he was a better candidate for our country. There's still people who believe that 74 million of them. So our work is far from done. But the other thing that's really important, as I say, and I should have said this before I dove into the 55% number is that it's still the most important to talk about Black communities, Indigenous communities, formerly incarcerated and young people who came out and voted and were the linchpins in all those swing states because they're the communities that have the most to gain from revised policy from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. So if we make sure that as we're broken record when it comes to politicians saying, well, it was the indigenous community that won this state for Biden in 2020, well, suddenly politicians in Arizona or you know the Southwest are gonna have to start paying attention to the needs of the indigenous community. And those are hundreds of years overdue. So we have to make sure that we're centering the communities that have the most to gain from revised policy and that 55% number is wrong. Well, I love that analysis and and that discussion because something that Sarah and I have been talking a lot about is critical thinking, right? And not just sort of blindly accepting what is told, which has been sort of a hallmark of 2020 in so many ways, but really looking at everything, right? And forming decisions and your based on facts and logic and a whole bunch of other things that have seemed to sometimes gone out the window in 2020. And can I also add like intuition? Like we're so married to, and this is where I get, sometimes people are like roll their eyes at me because I'm like, well, you can challenge science and you can challenge data if in some ways it doesn't add up to your intuition. It's like, you know, the climate deniers when they're like, there's no climate change. Well, like look up at, even if you're in the state of Pennsylvania, you could still see the smoke from the fires out West. You know, it's like this idea of like, let's use our intuition a little bit here. Like what we have that tool set and we don't ever listen to it. And science, even peer reviewed journals are biased practices. Like there's still fault in so much of this. And to, I was thinking yesterday, like we just assume that we know all of it, right? Like we've only mapped 10% of the seafloor, right? Like we only understand 3% of the rainforest. Like we still have so much more that we have to understand. So like, yes, data, yes, science, please include intuition and please sit in a place of humility of like, there's still a lot we don't know. You know, I think what you said about that number of, white women who voted for Trump not being zero, right? And given that, and given the need to center the marginalized communities as well, right? Like, and if we're thinking, you know, we're recording this at the end of 2020 and we're taking the long view, right? Because we know things can change so quickly and that we, this election showed us that we are in very different spaces throughout this country. So what do you think, like, what, should white people need to be doing more of? (laughs) I've been sitting in a lot of stillness over the past couple of weeks. I think specifically since the day that the media called Biden as president-elect, I've definitely had this moment of like, I can lean back for a second and not tap out, but I've been stewing this idea of like, what is the next? And What has come to me, not that it hasn't always been so obvious, but 
is that no 46 administration is going to do what we are hoping to get us to a place of justice and equity so we can go back to just focusing on the length of our planks or how hydrated we are every day that like the idea is that all of what we want to happen is still going to fall on us right that no matter how he protects DACA or what kind of immigration policies he reverses or what's going to happen with the Iran deal or you know all of that resides on squarely on the Roosevelt desk in the Oval Office but 74 million Americans, again, chose a different candidate than I'm assuming the three that the two of you did or that I did on November 3rd. And that's not something a policy is going to fix. It's just not. And yes, policy can reallocate bias training in law enforcement or bias training for medical staff or teachers. But the only way that we can come back to our humanity and be less of the sort of exceptional individuals that we're trying to prove to a set of bleachers in our head that's really occupied by nobody, but we've populated it with, you know, our frenemies from grade school and, you know, the other room moms. The only way that we can stop pointing blame on other people so we don't face ourselves is by doing the work like this right? Having these types of conversations in different mediums, it's by putting on a face mask and crossing the cul-de-sac and knocking on your neighbor's door and who might still have a Trump sign out and say, hey, I just want you to know I'm here if you need anything. Don't get into Medicare, Medicaid, gun control, you know, Chinese, US relations, like just don't touch it. Because really neither of you know what you're talking about. And I don't mean that as in like I do, but like whenever anyone's like, let's talk about taxes. I'm like, yo, tax experts can't even understand the code. (laughs) It's so complicated that like, we just have to get back to our humanity. Like we have to get back to that moment of, I know what I would do for a Trump voter if they were drowning. I know what they would do for me if I were drowning. And like, we have to get back to that because we have to remind ourselves that we're needed and that we have a role in the comings and goings of the world and that our legacy is important because all of the things that we want to give are pretty much the same, right? That we're all searching for joy, that we're all searching for self-worth and dignity. And so for me, what I think is next for us is thinking about the types of community that you can be building within your world. And what I think of, and I use this example at the end of the book where I have different types of community for different things, right? I have my two closest friends. We're on a three-person text message and we're like political geeks. And when someone listens to a podcast, they send the link and they're like, scroll to minute 17 or, you know, they're the ones that I texted that Giuliani was in the in the hospital for COVID and neither of them had seen it. And it's just like, we have each other's backs on like, news, right? And then obviously I have like my mom community from my kids' classrooms of like, I can't get on a Zoom or, oh my gosh, tomorrow's orange day or, you know, like making sure that you're creating different types of communities in your world, recognizing that this doesn't necessarily mean you're going to finally build a friend group that you've been craving for 30 or 40 years. And some communities like are temporary for the length of a school year. And some communities are temporary for the length of an election or some communities last 
forever. And so I think this idea of making efforts to create different kinds of communities in your world, and you can do that, right? Like your high school friends, like get on Zoom and have, you know, holiday cocktails and just do it. Everyone's waiting to be asked to sit at the table. And then once everyone's vaccinated, like it's walking across the street and knocking on your neighbor's doors. All of that and holding, you know, political officials accountable and running for office. And I do want to plug that there's 500,000 elected seats in this country. And most of us can list like seven of them. So like go run for office because there is policy, right? Like making sure that water and sanitation systems are benefiting all parts of the community, not just one side of the tracks. Like, go make that decision. Like I said, the smartest people I know, but truly the smartest people I know are women. And gosh, you know, I'm not sure that our brains are being used to solve the world's problems the same way they are and doing some other important, like planning the Halloween party, but not as crucial as, you know, Syria. I love that. And I hear that answer. And I still want to push just a little bit about this second part, because I feel like what you're saying is so good. It's so clear why it's good to build community. It's right. It's just good for our humanity. It feels good. We get that. And yet if we default to some of the circles, especially not in New York City or not in some of the major cities, it's very easy to find homogenous circles. And it's one thing to create those circles and then like constantly question yourself and hold people accountable to what they say. But what is in it for white women to actually make the effort to make themselves uncomfortable by initiating those conversations? That's a great question. And actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because there was something that you said earlier that I wanted to come back to. And it was specifically related to the individualism and collective question. And one of the tasks that I'm constantly requiring of myself that I think is part of specifically white women's homework is proving to yourself time and time again, the role you play in the collective and making sure, because we've done a very bad job of in our textbooks and our religious institutions in, you know, our homes, our landscaping and our Instagram feeds is seeing how we are part of the whole. And so I found myself whether I'm at like home goods or thinking about recycling or whatever it might be is thinking about how my behaviors, my consumption choices, you know, the choices that I make in the home are potentially impacting oceans or are potentially impacting intentionally marginalized communities. So I think a piece of homework is like being highly aware as you're processing like the biases that you didn't realize you have maybe pre the murder of George Floyd, but now you're like, oh, I got to look for my racial, gender, class, disability-based biases, but also looking out for your collective role. With regard to white women who like are really in zip codes and in school systems and in workplaces that are very homogenous, you know, my note today is And I heard this a lot in the listening circles that people would say, you know, how do I trust the news network? Or I don't know, like, it's all too much. I don't know how to navigate it. And I'm a little bit like, yeah, I totally hear you, but it's not an excuse. It's just not today, right? Like, you know, AP and Reuters are the most neutral sources, like just follow them on Instagram. Like, don't go to CNN or the New York Times or Fox or MSNBC, just go to AP.com, right? Like, you know how to get very fact-based news, right? And filter through the data, filter through your intuition. And then I would also say this, because there's obviously 
there's very toxic and poisonous components to social media, but there's also extraordinary opportunity and exposure in it. I've worked really hard on my Instagram feed personally to make sure that the people that I'm following are exposing me to different perspectives. And that includes following like alt-right handles, right? Like I want to know what they're saying. I want to know what they're saying about us, right? Like I, it, it's very important for me to understand that. But on my website at jennaarnold.com, there's a whole host of voices with their specific Instagram handles and their Twitter handles, like go in and just follow all of those people so that you start populating your eyes when you're on Instagram or on Facebook with other perspectives, right? When I find someone who I have a lot of respect for, I'll go to see who they follow, right? So I make sure I have access to it because if I'm a white woman in Morristown, New Jersey, and my neighborhood's white and my kids go to a white school and my husband works at a white company, it's like, of course I want to hang out with more half Japanese, half white women married to a black man with biracial kids. But like, it's not like you can find that, like, you can't just like source it. Right. And so I have a lot of empathy for this idea of having access to different perspectives. But I also am like, there's more podcasts out there. There are more books about the subject, like make the effort to do it. Last night, I put on Instagram that while we're in quarantine for the next couple of months, I'm putting myself to school and I want everyone's favorite documentaries. Like I'm going to be disciplined about watching documentaries and not watching reality television shows. It's the same thing that a trainer would say to you. Like when your alarm goes off at 6am, get your ass out of bed and work out. Don't press snooze. Like I'm a little bit like saying to you, like the intellectual trainer, like do the work it's at your fingertips. Like start with me. I'm not even that smart of a person, but like start with my Instagram handle and see the people that I follow, go to my website. I'm going to be updating some more of the people to follow who are new voices that I've met over the past couple of months and like start there, right? Like that's a place to go. In your listening circles, did you find that the women who were more connected to this work felt happier than those who felt like they had, didn't have a voice? Yes. Because it, even if you're sitting there confused, which I am all the time, right? Like that's the invitation. If there's any big takeaway I want for your listeners is to like, I invite you into the gray. I invite you into the, I don't knowness. I invite you into the confusion of all of this, right? Like get out of the binary of the individual versus the collective sit in the complications related to reparations, right? Like reparations are, it's complex. And I watch the scholars and the thought leaders on the front lines of this. There's reparations to descendants of the formerly enslaved, which is different than land reparations to the indigenous communities. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's something I we have to pay attention to when, again, right after George Floyd's murder and there was discussion around, or there still is discussion around defunding the police, there was a friend of mine put up like a nine point plan to defund the police and like where the resources would be allocated. She put it up on Tuesday and then I went to go repost it on Thursday and I couldn't find it on her feed. And I text her, I'm like, hey, where's that thing? She's like, oh, I pulled it down because step seven and step nine actually don't make so much sense. And it's not a minute to be like, oh, forget it. We don't have a plan to like reallocate resources from law enforcement. It's a moment for me to be like, okay, and just sit here and wait until she posts something new, right? So this idea of like, we definitively have no answers for most of the biggest things we face right now. 
we can chip away at the icebergs and we have to like be part of that process. I think so much is being reinvented. Like the way our healthcare system and our education system and building community, how that's going to look different because of COVID. Like it, we can't even, we're so in history right now, we can't even conclude or take, we don't have any takeaways yet. And so I do invite this, I don't know, Ness, I will also hold your feet to the candle and to the fire and say, you know, there are brilliant voices and scholars and academics and young activists who are just speaking truth, like go find them, like start with Greta. We all know who she is and see who she follows and go down that rabbit hole. Like you can get access to voices and populate your feeds with them. But we have to make a choice about what side of history we want to be on. And now's the time. That's right. And listen, I also, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is because like, I don't want to have to like sit on the juror stand when my daughter gets old enough to be like, where were you when? You know, like at some point they're going to be like, you treated the elderly and the indigenous like what? When you were a capable adult that could do something about it, right? Like, you know, I always think, I always thought, particularly when I learned about the Holocaust as a kid, like, well, where was everyone? Like, why didn't people run to the gates of those camps? Like, where were they? And we've obviously seen, you know, the many quotes over the past couple of years around, you know, evil prevails when good people do nothing and just complacency and apathy. And it's, you know, a lot of white women call themselves good, good Christians, well-intended, I mean well, but, and I don't have any place for that anymore, right? Like the best apology is change behavior and you'll be more pleased with yourself every hour, every day, every year, every decade that you put toward us and less, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't also make sure you don't have a beautifully decorated living room. Like I care about that shit too, but like, don't let your to-do list get in the way of living. And the most rewarding thing you're going to get out of life is being of service to the collective. Mic drop. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast, and we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 